Welcome back, dear listeners, to part four of Grey Matters, Who's Got Ground Control? In this episode, Ariel and I sit down with Peter Davenport from the National UFO Reporting Center in Davenport, Washington. Mr. Davenport has been the director of the Reporting Center since 1994. He's also served as director of the Washington chapter of the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, which is a nonprofit U.S.-based organization that is composed of civilian volunteers who study reported UFO sightings. With more than 4,000 members in 43 countries in all 50 states, it's the oldest organization of its kind, having formed in 1974. Peter Davenport has been featured in the New York Times, Stanford Magazine, the Seattle Journal, and the Wall Street Journal, just to name a few publications, for his research into the UFO phenomenon. Peter was a candidate for the Washington State Legislature, and in 1992, he was a candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives. Peter has been a guest speaker in numerous venues and has appeared in the made-for-TV movie The Secret World of UFOs in 2001. We are so honored to be able to ask a leader in the investigation of UFOs, is there proof that we are being visited? Are we alone? Stay tuned for this exciting conversation with Peter Davenport. Links to making reports and donations to the National UFO Reporting Center will be included in the show notes. Please note that the National UFO Reporting Center is a nonprofit organization, and donations of any size are appreciated. The National UFO Reporting Center was founded by a gentleman whose name was Robert J. Gribble, a retired Seattle fireman who was very interested in the UFO phenomenon. He had joined the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, very early on. And in the early 70s, he reasoned that what we needed was one hotline where we could bring all or certainly many UFO reports together to be able to compare them and investigate them. So in October of 74, he set up a hotline with a Seattle number, uh, which is still the same, 206-722-3000. And it has run continuously since that day. He turned it over to me in August of 1994. And I've been running it ever since. Hard for me to believe I've been doing it for 29 years. Over the years, I can only imagine the kinds of stories that you've received. How many UFO reports do you receive monthly? And do those reports vary from sightings to actual encounters or other unexplained phenomena? Or do they send you photographs? What kind of data do you collect? Well, I would distinguish reports over the telephone from reports submitted using our online report form on our website. But we receive probably between 20 and 50 calls per day. And I think we average about 500 reports, that is written reports per month. That's startling material. Yeah. Are those all sightings? I saw something or do those reports also include any kind of other contact? Oh, they include everything from Bigfoot to the Nessie monster in Scotland. (laughs) I would say probably somewhere, but I have to be very careful here because whenever you cite a number, you're stuck with it for the rest of your life. I would say probably somewhere between 1% and 30% of the incoming reports are of interest to a ufologist. That is, genuine reports of an authentic UFO, and probably closer to the lower end of that estimate. We get, of late, over the last three years or so, we've gotten many, many reports 
of the Starlink satellites that fly over in clusters and straight lines. And they're easily identified by anybody who has experience with them, but we get them and we post them nevertheless. Just a quick follow-up. You mentioned the term ufologist. Can you just lay out what that is? Who is a ufologist? Somebody who's interested in and usually researches the phenomenon referred to as UFOs, as ufology. UFOs, I think everybody agrees, are craft guided by intelligent creatures that have come from other parts of our galaxy or universe. That's what a ufologist is, somebody who's interested in and researches the UFO phenomenon. So do you consider one form of evidence more legitimate than another, say, when a report comes in through the contact page on your website versus something that's calling in? Are there key elements that you're looking for in particular that tell you that it is a legitimate sighting? Well, one can never be absolutely sure what a person is reporting, but uh, the most convincing form of evidence is photographs combined with multiple reports of the same phenomenon. Single-person reports are always questionable authenticity. You have to filter them very carefully. But when you get a cluster of people, as we did in the case of the Phoenix Lights event, March 13, 1997, literally hundreds of people called the hotline, all reporting pretty much the same thing. And that's pretty convincing evidence. Another form of convincing evidence is radar tracks or radar returns of UFOs. And we've had several of those. Radar, can you explain that a little bit more in depth? Uh, it's usually FAA-based radar or FAA-controlled radar. We had a case in June of 2000 of a young pilot flying a single-engine turboprop from Nantucket up to Manchester, New Hampshire. And he ran into an object or he encountered an object, I should say, over very close to Providence, Rhode Island. And he had the object go right by his aircraft on a converging course, missed him by 50 vertical feet. And we got the audio from the FAA through a Freedom of Information Act request and also got the radar data. And the audio is very clear in describing an object that reversed its course suddenly and was in train with this gentleman's aircraft. We just had something go right over the top of us that, I hate to say this, looked like a long cylindrical object. When you get radar and radio and personal testimony, that's pretty convincing. We had an earlier conversation with uh, Dr. Seth Shostak. He explained that the way they're looking for signs of there anyone out there is that they're very focused with telescopes and signals way far out. And when he mentioned you, he said that you were investigating different kinds of technologies. And so that was my next question with the kind of technology that you use on a daily basis to collect your data. What do you consider good proof? And when you're trying to answer that, that age old question is, are we being visited? So it sounds like it's coming from a multitude of resources when you're the kind of data that you're looking at. He also mentioned that you had some kind of technology that might be able to make the search for signs and proof much broader. Yeah, I've met Dr. Shostak. He's a very impressive guy and very 
capable in his field, and I hold him in very high regard. One thing I proposed to him briefly was that in lieu of using active radar, we should be using passive radar closer to home to see whether we can detect targets that are moving through our atmosphere. Passive radar is a technology first developed in the 1920s, I think, that allows detection of objects in our atmosphere by the reflected signals of commercial radio and television stations. I'd love to sit down with Dr. Shostak and talk to him about how passive radar might be applied to the field of ufology to settle the issue once and for all as to whether we're being visited or not. He was very, very focused on just receiving those signals. And without that kind of proof, he was kind of locked in that there hasn't been any proof. But what about all these reports that people say? And that's when he had mentioned you. And being able to use that kind of technology, that's the question that Jason and I had was, if there are all these masses of people who call in, how can that be denied? But his field only allows him to look at what's happening way far out there versus what's happening here on earth. And when you spoke to him, did you mention that kind of evidence to him? Like, but what about this? Did did he have a reaction? I mentioned it to him during uh, an evening radio talk show and he, to his great credit, he recognized what passive radar is. I would have expected that. But I think the SETI project would have been well advised to start closer to home rather than peering light years or thousands of light years into the universe to find seemingly intelligent signals by using passive radar closer to home and looking in our own atmosphere and the near-Earth environment. Uh, He didn't respond to it, as far as I recall. It seems like when trying to find really good evidence, there seems to be a tier level. What is considered good evidence in in your field? And you're saying masses of reports on one incident, radar signals. Um, Is there any other technology that you find convincing? Well, Francis Ridge out of Indiana uses a technical system he refers to as MADAR. Detects changes in magnetic fields in the vicinity of the detector. And I don't know much about it. He touts it as being a very useful technology. That's another one that could be combined with passive radar to get a double reading. Oh, uh, radar is a pretty familiar term, but I was wondering if you could maybe break down a little bit what you mean when you say active and passive radar and how one might be more useful than the other within the field of ufology. Well, active radar is the type of radar you see in the 1950s black and white movies with an antenna that rotates and transmits a signal. And every time that signal passes over a target that reflects electromagnetic radiation, it returns the signal to the the receiver portion of the active radar, and that target shows up on a screen. That is active radar. Passive radar is only a receiver. As radio and television, commercial radio and television stations transmit their signals, that signal propagates out in all directions, and it goes out the atmosphere and beyond our planet. Uh, But if it strikes something that reflects electromagnetic radiation, that reflected signal will be returned to the Earth. And if we build a set of antennas receiving that signal, we can use that reflected signal for detecting and tracking the target, irrespective of whether it's moving moving or stationary. And I came up with this idea in February of 1995. I've written several papers on the subject. 
It's been presented to Professor Avi Loeb, and as I say, Dr. Shostak also knows of it. Uh, he may have read my paper by now. But that's the difference between active and passive. You don't transmit a signal to be able to detect a an object using passive radar. You just listen for somebody else's signal to be reflected from the target. That's a thumbnail sketch of the differences. Mm -hmm. In fact, a point of interest is the first radar was used in England during the Blitz, during the German attack on English territory. And what they did was they transmitted a signal with the BBC transmitter, and they built a series of receiving stations all along the southern coast of England that listened for the reflected signals from approaching aircraft. And that's how they were able to detect incoming aircraft and determine their position. So the principle is exactly the same. I'm very excited about the prospect of being able to detect UFOs because they are not able to tell, as far as we know, what signal is being used to detect them. So it's very difficult to block the signal or to neutralize it electronically. It would be actually pretty easy to receive a signal or at least some indication that they have arrived and that they're present. You bet. Wow. And in fact, the U.S. Navy used exactly this technology with the U.S. Navy space surveillance system. It was a series of transmitters and receivers operated independently of one another. And they were the Navy was responsible for protecting the southern tier of the United States from surprise attack. And they used a passive radar system for detecting orbiting space junk and other targets as well. So I suspect that the U.S. Navy is quite familiar with the UFO phenomenon. And God only knows how many UFOs they detected, how many anomalous targets they detected during the 40 or 50 years that the Naval Space Surveillance System was in operation. It must be in the thousands. Well, and that's that's one of the things that I noticed that was very interesting when I was reading about the National UFO Reporting Center is that you do work with the FAA quite closely. And yes. so you must receive most of their reports, or maybe they're not allowed to share all of them, obviously, with the Air Force, Navy. Well, I feel very privileged. You're right, Uriel. Uh, we get a lot of calls from the FAA. I received one this morning and one yesterday. And the frequency of calls from the FAA and from commercial pilots, airline pilots, is on the increase, it would appear. We get probably one or two calls a week from the FAA now. Does that include the pilots themselves and the people yes. that are manning the, the towers? Yes, the towers. Yeah, we get calls from FAA supervisors, from FAA air traffic control specialists. And more often than not, they will give our telephone number to the, the flight crew of an airliner that reports an anomalous sighting. I feel very privileged to receive that information. What we do when we talk to the airliner crew is encourage them to submit a detailed written report so that another person reading it can understand what it all looked like to the crew. And more often than not, we get excellent reports from airline pilots and first officers.
Over the last several months, we've gotten a number of reports from pilots who claimed they were flying at extremely high altitude, 35 to 40,000 feet at cruise altitude, and they saw red lights above them, well above them, apparently, maneuvering abruptly. One pilot described that he first saw two red lights above his aircraft, then he saw four, and then he saw six, and they were maneuvering relative to one another very quickly and changing direction and swirling in circles and so on. Terrestrial aircraft just can't do that at altitude. Those reports I take quite seriously. Senior pilots, after all, are, in my opinion, some of the best sources of good information, good, reliable, accurate information, because it's part of their specialty. They have to be able to see something and identify it quickly. I guess the question that keeps coming up then, if we have pilots whose job is to basically man the air, we have people in towers who are watching the skies to make sure that our craft doesn't crash into each other. And all these people are having these experiences, seeing these things. Why isn't that evidence taken more seriously? If people are getting photographs, if you can see these things on radar, what is blocking the acceptance of these experiences, say, I guess, I don't know, we're all looking at for approval from. Maybe it's the government. I'm not sure, but yes, it all seems like really solid evidence. Yes, I, I feel the same way, Uriel. We get a lot of reports that are, in my opinion, extremely high quality reports from people who seem to be responsible and capable. But I don't speak on behalf of the government, of course. There are, in a sense, our adversary in controlling the information. I can't speak on their behalf. I don't know what forces have caused them to be so cautious with the UFO evidence, particularly over the last 60 or 70 years, ever since Roswell. But they seem to be loosening up some of the information they've collected, and I'm delighted by that. I don't know where it's going to lead us, but in a representative government system like ours, I think it's the responsibility of our government officials to share with the American people what they know. That's my position. I think they know a great deal, a great deal more than what they've let on so far. Is there a particular kind of funding that you would need to work on some of the other projects that you had mentioned to Seth and to Avi? There's no funding that I'm aware of. Do you look for funding? Good question. Reasonable question. I have been working so hard and just getting 170,000 reports to the American people that I haven't taken the time to write a book. I have a few ideas of books I want to write, but it takes time to do that. I don't have, I feel I don't have that time yet. If there was any other form of data that for you solidifies that we are being visited, what would you say to our listeners? Well, we've touched on the fringes of that. I think radar and high-quality reports, in fact, that leads me to the closing comment I might share with our audience. After a program like this, I get a flurry of calls, people wanting to tell me about their sighting 5, 10, 20, 25, and 50 years ago which indicates to me that this phenomenon has been with us for a long time. But what I would like to encourage our listeners to do is not call the hotline, but rather write out a detailed written report of what they recall about their sighting and submit it using our online report form at ufocenter.com. We need a written report to be able to do any good with the information contained therein. People generally want to talk about their sighting, but I take the position that the only kind of report that counts is a 
detailed written account of what they saw. I'm interested in their sighting irrespective of how long ago it was. People often call me wanting to know if they can submit a 20-year-old sighting. And my reaction is absolutely. We're as interested in those sightings that occurred 20 or more years ago as we are in sightings that occurred last night. It's just that I don't have enough time to listen to everybody's long-winded account of what it all looked like. Understandable. We'll have many different experiences on many different levels. Yeah. And if they've had a recent sighting, they're welcome to call the hotline. That number has been the same for 59 years. Area code 206-722-3000. That's 206-722-3000. And our website again is ufocenter.com, where we have a blank online report form just waiting for everybody's Exciting report. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time tonight to speak with us. Jason did lose his audio, so I know he is thanking you as well. Thank you again for coming on our show, Deep Spinach, in our series, Gray Matters. It was a delight to speak with you. This was fantastic. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Really appreciate it. And I commend you for clear-headed thinking on the UFO phenomenon. It appears to be definitely real, and it's occurring right around, all around us. Probably every day, people see a UFO in our country. And I suspect that there are many more that we don't, we're not aware of and don't receive from witnesses. I estimate that out of perhaps 10 or 20,000 sightings of UFO, all ufology gets only one written report, which underscores the amount of work there is to be done still. Thank you again. This has been delightful. Well, thanks again for a wonderful interview, and I really appreciate it. We do too. Thanks for joining our conversation with Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center. To report recent sightings, you can reach their reporting hotline at 206-722-3000. The website listed in the show notes is newfork.org. Please consider a donation to the center at newfork.org donate. You can also send in your written reports to National UFO Reporting Center, P.O. Box 700, Davenport, Washington, 99122. Please join us next week for Part 5 in our Gray Matters series from Deep Spinach. We'll be speaking with Professor Avi Loeb, head of the Galileo Project. You can contact Deep Spinach at spinachdeep at gmail.com or use the hashtag Deep Spinach in your social media posts. Deep Spinach is a production of Javi Media on the web at javimedia.net. Our email is info at javimedia.net. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. Avi Media.